0: I have an awesome announcement tonight. We have a great blessing with us tonight. Dan Hamill is going to open the word for us tonight so let's welcome him. yes so just as a way of introduction, um, you know one of the things like from the very moment I met Dan i was I was attracted to his passion for Jesus Christ and and when I meet somebody who has a deep passion for Jesus, I want to be around them because I want that to rub off on me. And, and that's one of the, the primary reasons that, that I wanted to get Dan, to know Dan uh, the moment I met him. And I, this, is, this is absolutely true. There are people that you know that, that they wane and they grow and they wane in their passion for Jesus. Dan is, is a brother that is consistent and his absolute abandonment of everything to know Jesus Christ. And so I'm so thankful that he is going to be the one that kind of just jump-starts our teachings in into our study on Jesus. Uh, and so would you please just open up your heart and receive from him tonight as he teaches us from the Word of God. Can you do that tonight?
1: Amen. All right.
0: And I'll also say this. Dad called him like two hours ago to come down here, so... Um, We're very blessed that he came. He has so many responsibilities. Let me tell you, I've been up in Indianapolis. The amount of stuff that he does in a week for that church up there uh, and Karen together with him is amazing. And so it really is so sweet that that he can come down and be with us uh, for tonight. So welcome him again as he opens. Thank you.
1: Well, it is early December, which means we're all in the same boat. We are all preparing for Christmas. And we're all doing different things to prepare for christmas aren't we just earlier this week on monday karen and i decided to block out monday night and help our family prepare for christmas and so we baked cookies we warmed up some hot chocolate we decided to tell our kids a bit of the christmas story we got out the artificial tree which is what we use for the sake of just money and ease and cleanup we turned on the lights we got everything decorated with the ornaments and then uh, we decided it was really Karen's idea to gift the kids with their very first present. It was a present for all of them. You can kind of see a little bit in there. It was a large train set. And the goal was to get this train set set up around the tree. And it's one of those train sets that is battery powered and it gets a little choo choo and it just goes around our little Christmas decoration. We opened it up, the kids loved it. They were so excited. Four or five minutes into it, the kids got distracted. They were no longer interested. About 15 minutes in, the kids started complaining, saying they did not want the present. And so Karen, you know Karen, she took them at their word and she said, it's not yours anymore. She packed it up and took it back to Target. <laughs> so it's not the way that the Hamill family had intended to start Christmas, but it's how we started Christmas. And all of us are getting ready for Christmas in one way or another based upon what's happening in your family with, with your roommates, perhaps even where you work. I am so honored to be with you tonight To turn our hearts and our attention to Jesus as we prepare for Jesus. I want to spend our time this evening really allowing the gospel of John to prepare us for Christmas. And if you have spent much time studying the book of John, you know that John could have done countless things to tell us about Jesus. But he, he skips over a lot of the ways to prepare us for Christ that the other gospel writers chose. John's gospel entirely skips over Caesar and Herod. John's gospel, get this, skips over Mary and Joseph. John's gospel skips over the magi, skips over the shepherds, skips over all of those things. And of course, John knew about them, but he chose to write what he wrote for a very specific reason. In fact, at the very end of John's gospel in John chapter 20, he says this. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote these things about Jesus, these very specific things, these very precious things, so that we may have life in his name, that we would know he's the Messiah. Some of you have not yet made the decision for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Lord and Savior of your life. John wrote these things that we're going to talk about tonight so that you would actually make that decision and claim him as the Messiah, the Son of God. Others of you have made that decision. You've made that decision perhaps not just years ago, but decades ago. But these things are written that you could continue to find life in his name. And so John skips over the details of the nativity that are told for us in the other gospels, and he begins his beautiful gospel with this doxological poem explaining and really exposing the majesty and the greatness of the eternal God who became human on our behalf. This is the way he summarizes it in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Truth. Uh, one of my favorite commentators on the gospel of John is Grant Osborne. Grant Osborne says this about John 1.14. Quote, in my opinion, this is the single greatest sentence ever written in the history of the human language. The deepest theological statement ever made. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. When John says that he made his dwelling among us, you might be familiar with that, 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 that phrase. Made his dwelling comes from a single Greek word, skenao which originally translated, I mean, very, very literally translated means he, he took up a tent. Like he came and camped alongside of us. He, he moved into the neighborhood where we were living. It's the word that's used throughout the Old Testament to talk about God actually dwelling among the Israelites in a tabernacle, in a portable tent where his presence, his glory would actually come down so that he could dwell with his people. But it was always temporary. It was always limited. What we have in Jesus, what we have in the, the first Christmas is God coming down to dwell among us, no longer in a temporary or a limited way, but in a complete way, in the fullest way. The word has become made flesh, God among us. Now, John, in his gospel as a whole, if you know much about John, he centers his gospel around these, these groups of seven. There are, for example, seven miracles. There's the turning of water into wine. There's the, the curing of the sick, the healing of the lame, the feeding of the masses, the walking on water, the restoring sight to the blind, the raising of the dead. Each of these are called signs. They are specific attestations of the glory of Jesus that people will be able to look to, understand his identity, and then place their faith in him. But not wanting it to be uncertain, not, letting, not wanting there to be any questions John also gives us not just these seven miracles, but he gives us these seven statements where Jesus himself says, here is who I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, not wanting to allow us even the potential of misunderstanding who this man was. John helps us know that Jesus is the one who nourishes and sustains us. He is the one who lights the way. He is the one who brings us into the household and the family of God. He is the one who cares for us. He is the one who gives us eternal life. He is the one who gives us strength for each day. So John could have written so many things. He wrote these very specific ones that we would have faith in Jesus, that we would know him to be the Messiah, that we would see his glory, that we would place all of our trust in him, give all of our devotion to him, and knowing how much, John loves these these groupings of seven. In our first five verses of the gospel, we're going to see seven truths about the identity of Jesus. And that's really where I want us to camp out today. We could do so much in John's gospel, but in just the first five verses, we're going to learn seven things about who Jesus is. And I think these truths that we will either learn afresh or be reminded of and, and be grateful for that reminder, they will draw our our heart and our devotion to Jesus. So, if you'd like, you can read along in your Bibles. You can read it uh, with the, the screens. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you're taking notes, go ahead and begin here. We're going to learn seven things about Jesus. Here's the first. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was in the beginning. John, I love this. He starts out his gospel with the same words that the book of Genesis start out with, in the the beginning. This is both strategic and brilliant at a literary level, but it's also very rich and nuanced at a theological level. Realize that what John is doing as he springboards into this gospel about Jesus is he gives us a hyperlink back to the creation of the world. And if you were to tap on that and go back to Genesis 1, you would realize that John is helping us to realize, uh, you would, John is helping us to, to discover that just like uh, in Genesis 1, the The world had its beginning. Now, through Jesus, the world has a new beginning. And I specifically love John being the last gospel to be written. He reflects on the identity of Jesus in a special way. This isn't true by every scholar, but roughly 95% of scholars who study the gospel will tell you that the first gospel to be written was Mark. In scholastic terms, this is called Mark in Priority. And if you were to read Mark chapter 1, you would see that he begins his gospel with a quote from the book of Isaiah. I am sending a messenger ahead of you to prepare the way. And it makes sense for Mark to begin his gospel, about, begin his gospel with a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah is called the, the gospel of the Old Testament. It is in the book of Isaiah that we, we hear that it will be a virgin who will be with child. It is in the the, the gospel of Isaiah, if you will, that we were told, uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his peace and government, there will be no end. Isaiah tells us this. Isaiah is the one who tells us that it is for... It was by his stripes that we are healed. So Mark begins by quoting this prophet roughly 700 years or so before Christ. A great way to begin your gospel. But Matthew, who pens his gospel after Mark, says, you know, Mark, good job. I tip my hat to you, but I want to take my people further back. Going to Isaiah is great. Let's go a 1,000 years back before Isaiah, and let's go to Abraham. And you can read those first a handful of verses in Matthew's gospel. And he gives you a genealogy from Joseph all the way back to Abraham. And Abraham is the father of faith. Abraham is the one, you know, who left Ur of the Chaldees and and, and trusted the God who he had not yet seen. And God said, I will make you into a great nation. I will give you a great name. All the people of the earth will be blessed through you, specifically through your offspring." And Matthew wants us to know that the offspring through whom the world would be blessed, his name is Jesus, and he has come. What a great way to begin the gospel. And then Luke follows Matthew and says, hey, Mark, you did a good job to Isaiah. Matthew, kudos. I mean, you went a thousand years further back, taking us to Abraham. But Luke says, let's let's go back farther still. We've got to go to Adam. We've got to go to the first man. We have to go to that first visible expression of the image of God, the one who was made in his likeness. And Luke wants us to know, taking us back to Adam, that Jesus is the truly human one, the one who perfectly and ultimately expresses the imago Dei, the image of God, who shows us his eternal divine likeness. Adam was tempted in the garden, and he he, he robbed from the tree of the knowledge of good and, good and evil but Jesus was faithful in the garden and he gave himself to the tree of life so that we all might find eternal life and come back to the true and ultimate Eden so Luke is telling some really rich nuanced things by taking us all the way back to Adam and then comes John and John says hey nice job everybody doing what you did but I want to take you even further back so here's the beginning of my gospel in the beginning before Isaiah, and before Abraham, and even before Adam, I am in the beginning. This is the pre-existence of Jesus. Know at the end of John's gospel, as Jesus is preparing himself for the cross, he prays in John 17, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And Jesus has existed from all of eternity. And the one who has existed from all of eternity steps into time to reveal the true nature of God to us and then to rescue and to redeem us back unto himself. Unlike everyone else who has ever lived, who has had a beginning, Jesus is from the beginning. That's the first thing we learn. Next, we learn that Jesus is the word. Now, to grasp the the depth, to appreciate the meaning behind this phrase that John uses to describe Jesus, the word, We have to understand how the phrase, the word was used by both the ancient Greeks as well as by the ancient Hebrews. So in Greek philosophy, it really begins with a guy named Heraclitus who lived roughly 500 years BC. He wrote a lot about this phrase, the word. And then following Heraclitus, roughly 150 years after that, you have uh, Socrates, you have Plato, you have Aristotle, all of whom are trying to kind of draw upon their influence by Heraclitus. And then after them, a few hundred years, you have Philo, who was very influential in the first century world. He was basically a contemporary of Jesus. All of these Greek philosophers are basically on the same train of thought. They want to, in their writing and in their speculation, they want to help people understand the governing principle of the universe. They want to help people understand what holds everything in the galaxies together. What gives, us, what gives, a, what gives everything its purpose and to describe that entity, they, they use this phrase, ha-lagos, the lagos, the logic. And that phrase, the lagos, you know, probably is translated the word. It is the fundamental principle, the underlining reality of the universe, according to the Greeks. That was the word to them. But we, we have to know not just what the Greeks thought. We have to know what the Jews thought. When the Jews reflected on the galaxies. They were interested in different things than the philosophers of Athens and Corinth were interested in. Their their chief text is the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And with God having spoken to them, they went to Genesis chapter 1. And when God formed the universe, he, he said, let there be light. He spoke and it became a reality. He said, let there be vegetation. He said, let there be be dry ground and let there be water. He said, let there be the stars and the moon. He said, let there be fish to swim in the ocean. And he said, let there be animals to walk across the ground. And he said, let there be birds to fly in the air. He spoke and it became reality. And so the Hebrew word for, for word, for speak is dabar. But it's not just the word being the creative force that brought the universe into existence and gave us the the intricacies of of life the way we see it on the planet now. We know that God also continued to speak. God gave self-revelation to his people. He spoke to Moses and gave the Ten Commandments. He spoke and gave the law. He spoke and gave wisdom. So to, to the Hebrews... The, the, the Debar, the word, is the creative force that brought the universe into existence. It is the law of God. It is the, the wisdom of God. It is the self-revelation of God. The Debar, the word, is the bridge between heaven and earth. And John writes to, to the world, to, to Greeks as well as to Jews. And he says to people who are looking for the logic of the world... He says to people who are looking for the creative force that brought the universe into existence as well as to understand the, the revelation and the wisdom of God, he says, I'd like to introduce you to the Lagos. I'd like to introduce you to the Debar. It's my very closest friend. His name is Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Jesus is the logic of the universe. Jesus is the personal creative power that brought the universe into existence. Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus is ultimate wisdom. He is the one who holds everything together. It is not a force. It is a person. His name is Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus is the word. Three, Jesus was with God. With this phrase... John is helping us to understand the nature of God and to even have a window, if you will, into the inner workings of the Trinity. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Jesus from all eternity has been with God the Father. Later on in this exact same chapter, John is going to tell us in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So you can clearly see that Jesus is not the Father. He's in relationship with the Father, and yet he is called God. And so this is expanding the comprehension of what any monotheistic Jew would have had in their mind when they said, The Lord our God is one. Yes, there is one God, but now John wants us to realize that there is a Father and there is a Son, at least in our comprehension of who God is. And John 1, 1 says that Jesus was with God. In verse 18, he is in closest relationship with the Father. And that phrase, in closest relationship, could be translated in the bosom of the Father. That is how, I believe, some, some older translations using... Victorian English would translate that word. Jesus is in closest relationship with the Father. Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. Now, the reason I like a more modern translation is because no one uses the word bosom today. Who's used the word bosom sometime this year? No one uses bosom. A non-believer would have no idea what a bosom is. So there might be some people here who even you hear the word bosom and you're like, what is a bosom? The bosom is that place, excuse me, with my microphone, it's very close to your chest. It's like um, the place that only the very closest people in your life could ever come, to be most intimate with you, to express ultimate unity with you. I uh, think about, um, it's a simple illustration. Think about Matt Henderson, who introduced me today. Um, you know, I really hit the jackpot when it came to marrying into a, a great family. Karen's the best. But the whole family's wonderful. And having a brother in law like Matt, you know, he's got me out of speeding tickets with his connections as a lawyer. That's great. <laughs> he's tall, you know, that's helpful. He loves God. We are united. We like to play sports. We like to talk about sports. We like to talk about the scriptures. We're both elders at the churches where we serve. Uh, we're both married to great women and have three kids. Uh, two sons and a daughter. Like, we have so much in common. But I can't get in Matt's bosom. <laughs> I cannot. We're, we're, we're related. But he's, I'm not welcome there. <laughs> he has a wife who's welcome there. For a few more years, his sons will be welcome there. Probably for a little bit longer, Laurel could come there. But there's that inner place In every person's life, that only those who are the closest with them could come. And John tells us that Jesus was with the Father. He was in closest relationship to him. He was in the Father's bosom. Now realize that for eternity past, God has no bodily form. He doesn't take physical shape the way you or I do. He's not matter. So what does it mean for Jesus, for the Son, to be in the bosom of the Father? But that for all of eternity, their souls have been intertwined. They have shared in loving communion and coordinated creativity that had the same heart, the same mind, the same purpose, the same plans. Later on in John's gospel, Jesus will say, I and the father are one for all of eternity. Jesus has been with God. That's your third point. Here's a fourth. Jesus is God. John takes us even further and even deeper into the identity and the majesty of Jesus. And he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And here it is. And the word was God. John wants us to know that Jesus of Nazareth, the one who walked among us, the one who spent years on this earth, the one that John himself traveled with and ate meals with and joked around with and and laughed with, that really, truly, completely human person was also divine. God in the flesh, and this is a doctrine that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. There's lots of religions in the world, but you can go to Judaism, or uh, or Islam. You can go to Shintoism. You can go to Hinduism. You could go to all the religions, and you would find basically there's the belief of a God who created the world, and who gives us some sort of wisdom or counsel or direction that we are supposed to live our lives by. But only in Christianity is there a God who comes near, is there a God who created the world, and then at just the right time in the history of the world, that God punched a hole in the universe and descended to become a part of the created realm that he himself had formed. The eternal one becomes subject to time. For the 30-some-odd years that Jesus walked the earth, everyone who saw him, they saw him in the flesh. They knew undoubtedly without any question, without any second thought, they knew he was man because they had eyes like we do. But if they were to have the eyes of heaven, they would see that he had not one nature but two. At the same time, he was fully man and also fully God. There's no other religion in the entire world that even begins to assert something like that about their founder, The Bible tells us that our Messiah's name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's how we're introduced to him in Matthew. The climax of this gospel that we are in, in John chapter 1. I'm sorry, in John chapter 1, we realize that Jesus is God. But the climax go all the way to the end of this gospel, to John chapter 20. And here we have Jesus who has been crucified and risen from the dead. And on Easter morning, you know, the ladies go to the tomb and they come back huffing and puffing. It's true, it's true. Like like he's not there. Like like something incredible has happened. And then Peter and John, they run to the tomb and they see that the tomb is empty and they come back and they begin to tell the other 12. It's happened. Just like he said it would. Jesus has risen from the dead. And Thomas says, "You guys have lost your mind. You're delirious." Maybe grief has gotten you. Maybe you ran so hard that, you know, you're getting ready to faint and you're seeing things. This does not happen. Dead people don't rise from the grave. Come to your senses, please. I am not going to get caught up in, in, in this ridiculous story. I will not believe that Jesus is risen from the dead unless I take my own finger and put it in his hand. I will not believe your testimony about him unless I take my own hand and I can put it in his side where I saw the spear pierce his body. And later on that day, John tells us that all the disciples were were together. They were in a room that was locked. They were hiding because of fear of the Jews. They just assumed that the same thing that happened to Jesus may well happen to Jesus' followers. And so they were hiding, they were cowering, they they were quiet, they were speaking at a hush not wanting to be found out. And then Jesus appeared, walked right through those, those locked doors. And he could have done anything in that moment. But he went right to Thomas. Thomas, take your finger. Put it in my hand. Let me see your hand. Put it in my side stop doubting and believe. And in that moment, Thomas fell to his knees and he declared, my Lord and my God. This is the most like, mind-blowing expansion of a word that you can ever imagine for a monotheistic Jew who had never imagined Trinitarian possibilities as a Reality of of who God is. But now beholding Jesus risen from the dead. He says my Lord and my God. Jesus was not with God. Jesus is God. That's your fourth point. Here's your fifth. Jesus is the creator. Look how John continues to expand his teaching about Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him. Nothing was made that has been made. So as God, Jesus is the one who made the world. And three times in this passage, you can see it, three times in this passage, John uses the word made. It's a very specific Greek word that he chose that has intentionality and and richness to it. The word for made that that is used here is ginosko. It means, or excuse me, ginomai. It means to generate. It means to bring something into existence, to to cause its origination. And John wants us to know that it is Jesus who brought the universe into existence, who made the world. Think about how fundamentally different this is than all the things that that we make. I mentioned uh, moments ago that earlier this week, the Hamels made some cookies. Like we took pre-existing ingredients we put them in a bowl mixed them put them in an oven and out came cookies we baked those cookies but we did not make them we did not we did not source them we did not bring them into existence from nothing they were just compiled with what had already been been there Uh, chase and and stephanie recently they built a house the house was was built it wasn't made like they did not like they did not source the lumber out of nothing they didn't generate the concrete and, and the granite out of the, the, the power of their mind. There were people who came and took products that are already in existence and compiled them. That is not how Jesus formed the universe. Jesus made it. Jesus brought it into existence from nothing. Jesus is the source. He is the origination of the universe. This is what theologians rightly call Creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God the Father is the architect who plans creation. God the Son is the agent through whom the world was made. I love how Glenn Scrivener has put it. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. Every world view requires faith. There has to be a miracle somewhere. We believe that the one who was born of the virgin happened to bring the universe into existence from the strength of his will. He is the one who creates all things. Next, Jesus is the life. I love how 5 and 6 build upon one another. John goes from telling us in general that Jesus is the creator to now telling us in specific that Jesus is the author and the source of life. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Look, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. It is one thing to create the universe. and I don't want to minimize that. To create the universe, you know, there were rocks and dust and water and gas. There's matter and there are elements but how do you get life from just that lifeless matter? Even the majority of secular scientists who defer to the Big Bang, an explosion 14 billion years ago, somehow or another, hydrogen and helium and lithium, we don't know how they got there, but they got there. Then they combusted. We don't know how they combusted, but they combusted. And then here is this universe that exists. Even if you want to concede to all of those things, you still have non-living matter. How do you get life? There are no good answers for it in the science books. But John has a book that tells us the answer. We have the generation of life through Jesus. It originates in him. It springs forth from him. Life not only finds its source in Jesus, but it it is given its continued capacity from Jesus. Uh, I love how Tom prepared us for communion. I want to reflect on those words again from Hebrews 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word so the universe is not just made through him he sustains all things the world in general and life in specific comes through Jesus and is sustained by Jesus a few weeks ago we were having a worship service at our church We had over a 1,000 people in the building, and about 15 minutes before the worship service ended, our power went out completely. Someone two blocks north of us decided to run their truck into a power line. And when the power was cut off from our building, the lights were off. The AC was off. Everything was off. There was nothing we could do because we were dependent in our building to have energy, to have power coming from an outside source. The same is true for life in this universe. And our source of life and energy is not the sun. It's not the stars. The source for life, the origin of life, the sustainer of life, is Jesus. John could have chosen a variety of words to talk about life being sourced and sustained in Jesus. There are three viable words in the Greek that could have been chosen. Bios and suke and zoe. Uh, Bios is biology. It's just natural life. Your tree is alive. Hopefully when you get home, your dog is still alive. Um, It's biological life. We all have have life right now. Our our, our blood is, is pumping through our veins. There is the soul life. We are more than matter. And we have that life that exists in us that will continue to exist even when our biological life has reached its capacity. And then there is zoe, which is divine life. Throughout the the New Testament, specifically in the Gospel of John, this word zoe is translated abundant life, eternal life, life to the full. And John says all of those things are found in one place and one place alone. Life is found in Jesus. Abundant life, eternal life, life to the full, can be found nowhere else than the person of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our final truth, that Jesus is the light. Now, this is a theme highlighted constantly throughout the gospel. John will use the word for light 16 different times in this gospel alone. And almost every single time that the word light is used, it is juxtaposed with darkness. And the same, you can see, is true in this message. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Bible recognizes the reality between good and evil, the, the reality of darkness. And we we just have to give attention to the darkness that, that, that pervades the world around us. When we're young, we're typically ignorant of that. Hopefully we stay ignorant of it for, for, for a good number of years, but sooner or later we, we, we come to an understanding. Uh, earlier this week, I, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Hudson, who almost always sleeps through the night flawlessly. It's 3, 3.10 a.m. He comes in our room. He is in hysterics. I mean, he is heaving. I mean, <gasps> just crying like crazy. And we we kinda Karen and I wake up, we come to, we bring him into the bed. Odds what's going on? What's going on? We calm him down after two, three minutes. He tells us he's had a nightmare. He's had a horrible dream. Oh no, son, I'm so sorry. Tell us what happened. Kind of begins to compose himself, but he can't do it that well. And he's like, I I was dreaming that mommy and Addie were eating a pizza. And I didn't get a slice. (laughs) (laughs) You got to love what darkness is to a (laughs) four-year-old. The injustice, right? But we've turned on the news. We have seen reports of poverty and crime, disease and death. Racism, discrimination, unscrupulous governments and wars. And into this disorienting darkness, Jesus comes. In John 8, he tells us, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 12, he says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus is the light, and his very appearance expels the dominion of darkness. The darkness cannot apprehend this light. The darkness cannot overcome this light. The light expels the darkness. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, Karen and I came to town, and on Thanksgiving morning, Billy and I and Uncle Brent went out to the, the woods near the camp, and we decided to try to get some venison on the table for Thanksgiving Day. Billy went off to the honey hole where ultimately a deer would be acquired and Brent and I went off to no man's land. And we walked together, we talked a little bit, we were whispering, not wanting anyone or specifically any creatures to know what was going on. We got to our respective stands and this is one of the best parts of hunting. It's not seeing a deer, it's not, you know, a fantastic harvest, it's being in the stand when it's completely still. It is pitch dark and you can still see the stars in their full brilliance and you sit there absolutely still, perfectly quiet, as slowly but surely those stars, their brilliance begins to fade. And instead of being pitch black, it becomes a deep dark blue. And a few minutes later, as you look at the Eastern horizon, you begin to see the red and you begin to see the orange and you begin to see the yellow and you wait and you wait. And as the sun creeps up over the horizon, the force comes alive. And that is a picture of what happens with the arrival of Jesus. The world was waiting forever in darkness. We just had these small little stars to light the way. And then on the eastern horizon, Jesus appears to light the way, to cast out the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome it. What does John want us to know about Jesus as he begins his gospel? If he had just a paragraph, how would he prepare our hearts for Christmas? How would he help us to appreciate Jesus, to turn our hearts to him, to adore him? You know, he would tell us that Jesus was in the beginning. He is the word. He, he is with God. He is God. He's the creator of life. He is the life. He is the light. This is why we even celebrate Christmas God is the one who told us through the prophet about him. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government would be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who we are talking about. Now when Mary saw what took place, when this one was was born to her, was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, as the shepherds came by, To tell her what happened in a field nearby. And to worship him. What did she do? Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. That is the only appropriate response to Jesus coming into the world. You remember I began by telling you about my kids who opened a present. Interested for a while. They they, they feigned appreciation. Within moments though they had lost their interest. Before long, they didn't even want it. The world is perpetually at the same risk of seeing Jesus, being mindful of his identity, hearing words about him, especially at Christmas time when everyone talks about Jesus, But we cannot fall into the same pattern that my kids fell into. We have to come to this gift that has been given to us by God. We have to come to the word. We have to come to the creator. We have to come to the life. We have to come to the light, and we have to treasure this in our heart we have to ponder who Jesus is we have to lay aside our other commitments and our other priorities we have to slow down and give our undivided devotion to Jesus we have to come and adore him let's pray God thank you for the gift of being with these people I love this church I love the heart that this church has for your son Jesus Christ Grow us in our appreciation of him. Grow us in our adoration of him. God, be pleased with how we ponder these things in our heart and treasure them as we treasure you. We ask it in his most precious name. Amen.